0: Today we continue our study in the book of Romans. So open your Bibles to Romans, whether you have the paper Bible or whether it's on your app. I call this the greatest letter of good news because the book of Romans is filled with good news. Matter of fact, I think this whole letter is all about good news when we fully understand it. Here in the early chapters, Paul, who's the author of Romans, is giving us the bad news quite honestly we need to understand the bad news so we can fully participate and understand and and the, the full goodness of the good news and we can fully appreciate that paul's been talking about the, uh, the wrath he says the god the, the the god's wrath and we've been talking about that that term of wrath of being god's hostility towards sin and very early on here, he kind of lays this out that God's wrath is for four different kinds of groups of people. He says it's for the depraved Gentile society in chapter 1, verses 18 through 32. He's mostly basically talking about the the Western civilization, Europe and North America. He's kind of describing us. He's like, God's wrath is for them. And then he goes on to the moralists in chapter 2. And that's what we started last week in how God's wrath is going to be for the moralists. That's the person who says, I'm good or I'm better than they are. We look at ourselves and compare to other people, and compare to other people, I'm good because I'm not as bad as they are. That's the moralist. We continue that study today. We're going to get into, uh, after Easter, talking about the self-confident Jewish person or the religious people saying, you know, I follow all the religious rules like like the Jews did, and because of that, you know, I'm fine. And then, Paul goes on and finishes off chapter three, talking about the entire human race. It's kind of like Paul says, Listen, let me talk to the Gentiles, let me talk to the moralists, let me talk to the spiritually elite people. And then if I missed any of you, I'm going to come back and say, For everybody, we're going to face God's wrath unless we follow God's plan. So he covers all humanity. Romans 3.10 says that no one is righteous. Paul's like, we've got to understand that we are not righteous. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And Paul's, Paul's just basically, in the first three chapters, trying to get us to understand that we fall in the all category. If you understand that, would you raise your hand with me? I understand I'm part of the all group. You, now we could probably just jump on right past chapter 3 and get into chapter 4, right? No, we got to continue just understanding this journey and be able to grasp that and get the mindset of what does this mean for my family and my friends, that everyone's going to face the wrath of God. And our understanding of this truth makes the gospel great news. Tremendous news. News that I hope we get so fired up that we want to share it because when we understand that our friends and family members are going to face the wrath of God, they need to understand the gospel message and how we don't have to receive the wrath of God. Today, we pick up in Romans 2, looking at this moralist. We started last week talking about four principles by which God will judge the moralist and the person who has never heard the gospel. Last week, we covered the first two principles that God will judge based on knowledge, and God will judge based on the heart. And so as we look at Romans chapter 2 today, we're going to tackle number 3 and number 4. Number Principle number 3 is that God will judge based on our deeds. Now before I get into that, because when you think about deeds, that means God's going to judge us based on what we do. So before we get into verses 6 through 10, it's important for us to understand what Paul isn't talking about here. Or we may get a little confused. Paul isn't talking about salvation as we come to verses 6 through 10. Paul isn't talking about how we will get saved. He's talking about how God will judge. And this is important that we understand the difference because this is the basis of true Christianity. This is the bedrock of Christianity that we are not saved by works. You all with me in here? You're with me. I need some head nods. I need, I need some little help because these mass things are a little bit hard still. We're not saved by works. There is no way that you and I can work our way to salvation. Well, I'm going to do all this good. I'm going to make sure I do all these things right. Follow all the religious rules. There's no way. No amount of good works, no deeds are going to get you into heaven. As a matter of fact, Paul says to the church in Ephesus and Ephesians 2, for it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. In other words, there's a gift that we're given, a faith in our heart from Almighty God, and if you exercise that faith, then it will save you and not by works. In other words, no one can say, no one can boast, I'm really good, and that's why I'll get to heaven. Look at all my good. Look at how kind I am. Look at how gracious I am. Look how much I go to church. Look at all this good stuff I do. When, when you see somebody in heaven I don't know if we're going to have a conversation like this, but just imagine if we do. If you and I get to heaven or you and a friend get to heaven and you ask them, how did you get here? No one in heaven is going to say, well, look at this list I did. I went to, took care of senior citizens and I cared for the poor and I didn't cuss and took care of my friends and I stayed married and, and see all oh my good. And because I had that really good list, God let me in heaven. No one's going to have that conversation. The only conversation we'll be able to have is, how'd you get into heaven? Well, because of the blood of Jesus. I put my faith in Jesus. I trusted Jesus. That's what Paul is saying. Paul is saying we're saved by grace through faith. In other words, we can't boast about this because it's what God has done for us. Now look at verse 6. He will render to each one according to his works. In other words, God will judge the person who doesn't accept the free gift of salvation. In other words, there's accountability for your life and for your actions. Someday, everybody will give an account. Unless you give your heart and your life to Christ, then all your sin debt is washed away. You'll be able to say, Jesus, why should I let you in heaven? Jesus. What what happened to your sin? Jesus. But he's talking about those who choose not to do that. Paul's talking here about people who think they're good enough. They think God will let me into heaven because I'm good. Not going to happen. Not going to happen for anybody. See, a person will be judged according to their works. You you think your works should have gotten you to heaven, and God says, hey, let's take a minute, let's look at your works. If that is the mindset is, well, I I don't have to trust Jesus, I'm just going to be good, well, there's going to be a conversation one day. Let's look at these good. And if you sin in one area, then you're guilty of sinning against the whole law. One failure, you're guilty. Revelation 20 says, And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. John is referring to the book of life, which is the book where our name is written when we accept Jesus as our Savior. Our name goes in this book, and that's the book of life saying, hey, you're in heaven. And then the the dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books, in other words, there's another book, and the dead is referring to those who did not accept Jesus as Savior. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was what? Judged according to what they had done. In other words, they said, I don't want to put my faith in Jesus. I'm going to trust in myself and my own good works. And so there's a judgment time to say, let's talk about that. John, the writer of Revelation, is contrasting these two groups of people. Those who think I can do this, and those who say, no, I'm going to trust my faith in Jesus Christ. Look at verse 7. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. What is Paul doing? Paul is contrasting two groups of people. There are people who didn't receive Christ, And there are people who did receive christ he's not talking about those who do these things to be saved he's talking about people who have already saved and as a result do this he's referring to people who put their faith in jesus saying how would you know if you're saved how can you even measure in your own life am i sure i'm saved?" paul's saying listen there's some indicators that you've given your life to christ your, your life is about the glory of God. You seek God's glory, not personal glory, but God's glory. Your life is about the glory of God, and how do I glorify him? Matter of fact, Paul said to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 10, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. So Paul's like, hey, when you get out of bed, do it for the glory of God. When you go to eat, go, do it for the glory of God. When you go to work today, do it for the glory of God. When you get up this week, everything you do, your whole life should be about God and his glory. What I care about, what I think about, what I'm processing, what I'm going to do. Paul's like, you should be asking, how can I lift up God? How can I lift Him higher? How can I worship Him more? Our appreciation, our devotion, our thankfulness, our gratitude, all of it is about God. Paul's saying, if you are really believe in Jesus put your faith in, Paul says, then you are saying, my life needs to glorify Him. Verse 7, he says, honor. He says, you glory and honor. How can I live a life that honors God, that, that, that reveres God, that that's my mindset, shows God you did so much for me, I want to hold you up high, shows God that I understand that Jesus went to the cross, and I understand he died on the cross, and I understand he rose again, and I put my faith in him, and that means so much, I'll do everything I can to lift him up. Paul's saying you give him glory, you give him honor, and immortality. Paul's saying we live our life because he's an immortal God. How how can I live my life where I set my my, my mind on things above? Paul says in Colossians, where Christ is seated in the heavenly place, that we set our affection and we set our desire on things above. The mark of a Christian is that we are not of this world, that we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. Too many times, though, we get caught up in what? What's happening here and now? I can see my car. I can see my retirement bank account. I can see my job. I can see my clothes. I can see my house. And so many times, that becomes our focus. But Paul's saying, that stuff is temporary. What is on unseen, that's eternal. We have a heavenly spiritual perspective. And Paul says, that's how we should be walking as believers in Jesus. Can I give you a warning today? see one head, two heads. Can I give you a warning? I'm concerned about our Christian culture today. I am greatly concerned about our Christian culture. And if you are a believer in Christ, let me talk to you here today for a moment. If you're not a believer and you're like, I'm investigating, I'm still trying to figure this Christianity thing, then you get a chance to listen and hear of how a believer should be responding to living our life. But I am concerned that we, we're about coming to a place where we are consumed by our career during the week and our entertainment on the weekend. That we're too consumed with living the Monday through Friday to take care of me and my paycheck and my career. And on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, I just want to know, how can I have fun? Only to wake up and realize one day that you have no desire for the things of God. And I think the pandemic has ramped this up because it has pulled us away and has pulled us apart. Too many believers have become consumers of restaurants and sports and movies and hobbies and binge-watching and hundreds of other things, but their sense of heaven and hell and spiritual realities has died a warning to you church just stop for a moment and think about your paycheck and think about your 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 checking account and where are you investing your time and your energy and your money and look at your social media it's so easy for us to say hey watch this show i watch that hey i'm going here you go there hey look at this restaurant and then you say what about jesus and it's silence and nil I just encourage you, church, stop and look back at your social media posts and go, would people know I'm a believer in Jesus or are I afraid to maybe tell somebody about that? I'm not telling you that every single post you make has to be Christianese, but they should know that you are a believer. It's time for us to wake up and get a hold of ourselves. I'm greatly concerned. Something's wrong or something's missing. Heaven is real and God's wrath on people is real. It's going to happen. Are you concerned? am I concerned? People are headed to an eternity without Jesus Christ. At some point, a believer must say, this is the biggest reality in my life. I need to let other people know about it. But we live so much for the Monday through Friday and the weekend having fun. The believer says, what can I do to reach more people? The believer says, How can I tell somebody else? The believer says, Hey, when my preacher says Easter's coming, I need to be praying. I need to invite somebody. I'm not going to let that go in one ear and out the other. I'm really going to do it. I'm going to be bold this week. I'm going to pick up the phone. Hey, I've been thinking about you. You've been on my mind. How have you been doing since the pandemic's been going on? You know what? My church has been coming back together. We're celebrating this Easter this Sunday. I would love to have you come. I'm not sure what Easter is. Just come. you got to hear about this message that we hear every single Easter. I want you to be there. Well, I'm not really sure. I'll take you out to lunch afterward. Okay, I'll be there. Do something to encourage them to get there. Is your passion Christ? Do you wake up in the morning thinking about Christ? Do you wake up in the morning going, I'm going to live for Christ? If not, something is wrong, and we've settled for a brand of Christianity that is less than anything we find in the Bible. Absolutely less. We find ourselves so addicted to amusement that we have no energy to think about how we can give our time or our talent to eternal things. And, And I'll tell you, 25 years of ministry, 25 plus years of ministry, Many times I've had the conversation, hey, I'd like to have you serve here, get involved here. Well, preacher, I can't because I'm so involved with this thing and that thing and this thing, and I don't have time to do the work of the Lord. When's the last time? When's the last time you had extra money? Extra money. Probably some of you have had it in the last week or two, right? Your bank account got hit with that blessing from our government, depending on which side you think about that. Want it, don't want it, it doesn't matter. It, it hit your bank account probably. What was your thought? Oh my goodness, I'm going on vacation. Oh, I can't wait to go buy this car. Oh, I want to pay off these debt. Oh, I want to send my way to my retirement. Was there a thought, Lord, what can I do with this money for your kingdom? Lord, is there a homeless shelter that needs help? Is there a girl shelter that needs help? Is there a church camp that needs to be blessed? Lord, what can I do? Lord, does my church need? Lord, am I going to tithe off of this? Was there a thought when that money hit your bank account? Lord, how can I bless your kingdom and help your kingdom come on earth while we're waiting for it to come in heaven? How how do I do that? Is that part of it? When you get extra time in your life, and then you say, extra time? When's that ever going to happen? And I know that because I'm walking in it right now. With the kids that are, that are now kind of moving out of the house, and it's been happening the last few years, they're driving on their own, I don't have to run them everywhere. Brian and I find ourselves going, hey, we have some extra time. What are we going to do with this extra time? Let's binge watch another show. Really, you start getting into that temptation. What are you going to do with some the extra time on your hands? When you have extra time, you go, Lord, what do you want me to do with this time? How can I use this time to benefit you and benefit your kingdom? I had a conversation with my mother-in-law the other day and it was it was she didn't even know she was speaking into my life in the moment of that, but also speaking into the sermon. We are talking about people who travel on the weekends and people who buy RVs and people who buy second homes in Florida or second homes wherever you got to go. We were talking about that, and she said in her younger years, her and her husband, my father-in-law Mike, would discuss and had ideas of doing that. We want to get an RV and travel the country. We want to get a second home. We want to be able to do those kind of things. She said we decided to say no to those things because it was more important that we were in our church, serving with our church, because that's where God wanted us at. I'm concerned that's not our mindset today's culture. How can I have more entertainment? How can I have more fun? Well, let's buy the RV. Let's buy the home. And then we become what? Worshiping those as our gods. So what Paul is saying. Paul's saying, watch out. What we live for here is temporary. Are you living for the eternal? Move on to verse 8. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. This is Paul explaining that judgment is coming on people, even moral people, even people who think they are good. He says the self-seeking, when people don't know God, then what do they do? They're wrapped up in what pleases them. And because we live in this culture where we can get wrapped up in what pleases ourselves, it's easy for us to fall in that temptation. What makes me happy? What keeps me happy? That's all self-seeking, taking care of me, myself, and I. And he says, then it leads to not obeying the truth. You know why? Because if your life is all about you, what's going to make me happy about my schedule, what I want to do, what's going to be fun for me, when God says, I want you to do A, B, or C, then we're going to say, no, God, that's not so happy for me. And we will what, choose to disobey. Let me just give you a small sample I see in the church. Hey, I think you as your preacher, I believe you should be part of a small group. You should be part of either a, a women's small group, a men's small group, a growth group. And many times, well, I, I can't do that. I don't have time for that. There's no way in my schedule for that. So we say no to God's Very clear scriptural guidance for us to be involved in a group. Stop obeying the truth. So God will judge us based on our deeds person who has been redeemed, his life will focus on his glory, his honor, his immortality. And now look what Paul warns in verse 9. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. Tribula- tribulation, many times you think of that being a, a word used in some end-of-life type, movie type thing going on, or maybe some book about the tribulation. Let me explain that word to you. Before modern-day technology... Wheat, wheat fields were cleared by hand, and they had cut off the, the sticks of the wheat, and the farmer would gather the wheat together, and they would lay the wheat then down on a on a rock, and there was a process where they had to beat the, 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 the sticks of wheat. They had to beat them and beat them and beat them to get the kernel of wheat to separate, because all they really wanted was the kernel. They didn't need the sticks that it grew on, and there was this huge... Physical process, but imagine the, this wheat and sticks gathered on a set of rocks and the farmer beating this and beating it and beating it over and over to separate the good from the bad. That's the picture that is going on there, That this, this field of sticks. They do this to separate that wheat, and, and they would call that the wheat going through a severe crushing or a pressing or a beating in order to be healthy and in order to be used. He's talking here about hell he's making the comparison that hell is going to be a place of crushing and pressing and beating just like the farmer would have been able to visualize hard for us to visualize because modern technology now tractor just goes along and it does the process it cuts it off and it splits and we're like hey we don't even see what happens but that was the process they would have been very familiar with as we use the word tribulation and then the word distress literally means a small narrow place a small, narrow place of punishment, specifically. What do we think of when we think about a small, confined, narrow place of punishment? It's prison. It's jail. He says, "A small, narrow place of, of solitary confinement where there's crushing and pressing, and this narrow place he's talking about that is dark and lonely and, and all by yourself, is hell. And Paul's referring to that. And then verse 10, he goes on and says, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jews first and also the Greek. He's like, it doesn't have to be that way. Paul says there's honor and there's glory and there's peace for those who do good. And the good he's referring to is those who put faith in Jesus Christ. Putting their faith in Jesus, not trusting in my own goodness, but trusting in the goodness of the cross. So God judges based on knowledge, heart, and deeds And because he's a righteous judge, God judges based on impartiality. Impartiality. Romans 2.11 says, For God shows no partiality. Simply this, he's consistent for everyone for all time and shows no favoritism. Now, in our culture here today, we have a hard time seeing that. Why is that? Well, as a parent, I'll be truthful. There's time I've showed favoritism, Lily over Luke or Luke over Lily or Caleb. I didn't treat them all the same. Or I remember days when I was a youth minister or leading church camps or doing some sports camps. There's days you would treat one kid this way and this kid this way because in our human tendency, it's hard to show absolutely no favoritism. For those of you in this room that are maybe are, are school teachers or working with students, you understand, you're like, yeah, there, there's, there's, there's certain kids take an extra spot in your heart. You're like, man, I love that kid and I got I to gotta, you know, treat them all the same. But it can be quite challenging. Not with God. He shows no impartiality, no favoritism. Romans 2.12 says, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will, will also be judged by the law. He's talking to two groups of people here, and he says, I'll show no partiality to either group. Two groups, those who knew the law. Verse 12, part B. All who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. In other words, they have the law, they've read the Bible, they understand the Scriptures, they will be judged on based on what they know. And the more they knew God, the more they'll be accountable, and the greater the judgment will be. So in one sense, you go, well, how much more do I want to know God? But Paul's drawing people towards that, like you should want to know God, you should desire to know God, because... If you know God, you know what? You know Jesus. And you know Jesus, you're being judged by what you know about Jesus. But for people who want to live under the law, the more they study it, it's like, hey, you'll be accountable living by it. Now, you may ask, what about the person who doesn't know or understand or not able to understand the Bible? Many times, you'll have parents ask, what is the age of accountability? Like, when is it that my child, if they don't make a decision for Christ, they'll be held accountable? I wish the Bible gave us a very clear, hey, your child be held accountable at the age of five, or they'll be held accountable at the age of 10 or age of 12. Many times we see children make decisions for Christ somewhere between the ages of eight and 12. But I don't think it's about an age, I think it's more of a condition of accountability. When do they really understand it? Some people never have the faculties, the mental capacities to get there because they have a learning challenge or, or they're born with a, with a physical challenge or learning challenge, and they may go into their adulthood and maybe never come to an understanding of who God is, and because they can't learn it, they never reach a condition of accountability. What about infants who die? Never reach a condition of accountability. That little baby or that little two-year-old or three-year-old, how do we understand this? I think we understand that God's mercy and grace of God takes them into heaven. One of the scriptures that I like to look at is when David lost his infant son. In Psalm, David says, he will not come to me, I'll go to him. And David's referring to him who's now in heaven. One day I'll go to him, one day I'll be with him. For everyone else who has the condition of accountability, then Paul's saying there is accountability. Look at verse 13, for it is not the hearers of the law, who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Here's a point Paul's trying to make. Who can do the law? If you and I can do the law and do it perfectly, then you and I don't need a Savior, and we'd be justified. The issue is this. No one can do it perfectly. Paul's like, yeah, you have the law, but not one of us can live it out perfectly. The topic of hell arises is someone who asked the question, well, what about people who have never heard? almost assuming like God is unfair or God is not reasonable, almost like saying, God, I have a bone to pick with you. Some people can't know or haven't heard about you. Like someone can delete God's justice. Like, God, um, I know who you are, but they may not. And so God's not a just God. Do we trust that God is a just God? Like we have a better sense of his justice as his fairness of God does. I think we got to put our trust in God. But there's a second group of people that Paul deals with. Those who have never heard the truth of God's Word. Look at verse 12. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. Those who have never heard it. How does that work? All people are guilty whether they read the Bible or not. That's what the Bible says. Guilty of what? Guilty of sin. So how can we be held accountable? Well, Paul says people are held accountable because of creation. Go back to chapter 1. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Paul says people look around, they see the stars, they see the rivers, they, they feel the rain, they look at their own hand, they look at their own body, and it should make them ask, Who's the designer of all this stuff? Who made all this stuff? There's got to be a designer. There's no way for this stuff to just pop out of the air. And so there's a designer, and everybody has the opportunity to say, who made this world that I see? Second group of people are accountable because of their own conduct. Look at verse 14. For when Gentiles, who do not have the law by nature, do what the law requires, they are law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. Here's what he's saying. Even people that have no knowledge of God still do good things. People who have no knowledge of God, they can still love people, care for people, nurture people, uh, do acts of kindness. Now, some of that maybe is embedded in a culture, and so you learn to live with that in a culture, but people innately have a sense of some things that are wrong and some things that are right. People have that inside. And, And Paul's just saying that, look at your conduct. Just by our conduct and way we treat one another, we can say, man, who made us like this? Whose image am I created in? Why do I think this way? Why do I feel? Why do I behave? Again, ask the question, who's the designer? Thirdly, people are accountable because of their conscience. Look at verse 15. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. You know, people feel bad when they do things that they're not supposed to. Don't even need to know God. Just inside of us, they feel feel pleasure when they do things that they're supposed to do, and they feel displeasure when they do things they know they shouldn't. There's a conscience, and people will be judged by their conscience. Paul is talking about how the inner conscience of mankind has thoughts that are from God. That are, that, and they have thoughts that are not from God. We have thoughts of, of envy and jealousy and anger and unforgiveness and hatred, and, and the list goes on, and we can recognize those thoughts and go, doesn't feel right. Something's not right. I shouldn't be doing this. I shouldn't be thinking this way. I shouldn't be treating people this way. Paul's argument is, that's your conscience, and where's your conscience come from? From God. And so when we look at our conscience, and we look at, at the creation, and we look at our conduct, it should be driving us to go, Why and who? Why do I think? Why do I feel? And who put all this inside of me? And so people are without excuse not to say, I've got to discover who this creator is. And so God knows what's going on in the human heart and mind. Psalm 139 tells us, God perceives our thoughts from afar. That's what Paul's saying. On verse 16, on the day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ. No one knows what's going on in their heart and mind. Even we struggle, as we talked about last week, to know our own heart and our own mind. But he sees it clearly and perfectly. Jeremiah 17 says, But I, the Lord, search all hearts and examine secret motives. I give all people their due rewards according to what their actions deserves. Because God is a God who judges with impartiality. Now let me wrap up today, this section about God's judgment. We're walking through this first part of of chapter 2, understanding God's judgment and these four actions, let me wrap up with a few thoughts. Let me tell you, God's wrath is terrible. Quite honestly, there's no way a, a preacher could explain it enough for you to understand it and fully grasp it. There's no way, for I think, for us to even really fully read the Scriptures and get it without being enlightened by the Holy Spirit. But God's wrath is terrible, and He judges nations, and He judges peoples, and He judges people. And full demonstration of His wrath will be shown on sinners and their sin when they are rightly and justly and righteously sent to an earth eternity without Him based on their deeds. So when people say, I don't need God, I'll walk in my own way, and I'll follow my own path, that judgment is going to be awful terrible for people we know and we care about. And people don't go to hell by accident. It's a choice. It's not a party. It's a place of darkness. It's alone. It's a crushing. It's a torment. It's agony. It's pain. It's continual suffering. C.S. Lewis said, No madman in his wildest flight of insanity can imagine the torment of hell. We really can't even fully grasp it, but we know it's there. And we all have friends and family members and people we care about who we say, I don't want them to go there. I don't want them to experience the wrath of God because the wrath of God is real on all people. And that's why we need the gospel and that's why we need to share the gospel. Secondly, God's kindness, though, is incredible. God's kindness is unbelievably incredible. God is so kind. Paul says that his kindness of God leads people to repentance, that he called them to a place of repentance, and he's being kind. A matter of fact, he, he called a temporary truce, as we discussed last week. God said, okay, you deserve wrath, but I'm putting the truce on I'm not going to bring it yet. I'm going to give people a chance to repent. I'm going to give people a chance to turn towards God. God's heart is, is that God has given everyone in this room a chance to hear the gospel, and he wants us to share the gospel. We have that opportunity now. We have the opportunity now while we're here on earth to repent and to be made right with Him. We have the opportunity now to speak our mind or to speak our peace or to share with somebody else who Jesus is. Now is the time because God is kind. And His kindness, I believe, brought you here today. His kindness today had you turn on the computer and get on your phone and join us over social media to say, okay, how am I doing and where am I at and what do I need to do with this study of Scripture in Romans. But lastly, I want us to know that God's salvation, it's available. It's absolutely available. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of salvation. Now is the time of salvation. It's not later. It's not after I pass. It's now is when people make a decision for Christ. Scripture says, whoever so will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Have you called upon the name of the Lord? We cannot walk through Romans without us first evaluating. There's some people who can sit in church forever and never have called upon the name of the Lord. Lord, I need you. Lord, I believe in you. Lord, I accept the free gift of salvation. I want to give my life to Jesus. That's calling upon the name of the Lord. Have you done that? If not, why not do that today? It's not automatic. It just doesn't come on us like osmosis. Well, because I went to Centerpoint Christian Church and sat in a chair, boom, osmosis, I'm saved. No, you got to call upon the Lord. Lord, I'm a sinner, and I need Jesus to save me. Lord, I don't want to trust in my goodness list. Lord, I can't do it anymore. Lord, I'm giving it all over to you, and I'm going to trust you for salvation. And your friends and your family members, people who care about their day of salvation is now. Because we understand what salvation is. Our purpose is to go share the gospel. I pray Easter next week is just a grand celebration. Especially when you reach out this week and you grab some people and say, come with me. As next week we'll we'll pause on Romans, kind of. Because we're going to focus on the resurrection. We could preach a whole Easter message. Me, I'll do that. Preach a whole Easter message tied all to Romans. See if I'm smart enough I can figure that out people need Jesus. It involves you saying yes to Him. It involves you sharing Him. I want to give you an opportunity today. If you're in this room, you never said yes, you never accepted a Savior, meet us at the cross. A couple of our prayer team are back there. Come back there. We'll, we'll, we'll help you know what it means to put your faith in Jesus. Take that step of faith in Him. Love to do that with you today. He doesn't want anyone to perish. He doesn't want anyone to live in eternity separated from Him. Salvation is today and it's available to all who call upon His name. Father God,